And in the meantime, I want you to be turning to Revelation chapter 12 this morning. We'll pick up where we left off last time in this incredible book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible. If you're, you're newer to the Bible with us, and if you didn't bring one, you should find one uh, in the songbook rack in front of you. And maybe uh, sometimes people steal those for the glory of God. Um, and if you find someone on your row that doesn't have one, maybe you can send one down to them. And turn to Revelation chapter 12. I will remind you, we still have a group on the other side of the earth. Uh, they're going to be making their way back from China into Manila, picking up a few others that didn't make the China gig. And uh, they should be back in Akron, Canton on Wednesday morning, and then Joe and John uh, on Wednesday night. Revelation chapter 12, and I, I think it's apparent to most of the folks that are in here that we live at a time in human history when... This book that we call the Bible has come under some major attack. In fact, there's no doubt some people who are in this room this morning who have fallen prey to the very attack that I'm talking about. But something that you need to understand is that this uh, attack didn't begin in this century. In fact, it didn't even begin in the, in the previous century. What you find as you begin to go to the Bible is that the actual record of human history begins with just such an attack, an attack on the Word of God. God spoke His Word to Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, and by the time you can get to chapter 3 and verse 1, what the Bible does is it provides for us the first recorded words of Satan, and I want you to check this out. His words, the first recorded words of Satan in the Bible, come in the form of a question, and it has to do, that question had to do with what God said. In other words, it had to do with God's word, God's words. The first recorded words of Satan in the Bible are, Yea, hath God said? Satan said, Eve, is that really what God said? Eve, do you really have the word of God? And you see, since he was successful in that first attempt, what you find historically is that Satan has never changed his strategy in dealing with mankind. And what is so sad is that he's never had to because he comes, he questions the Word of God in every generation, and in every generation since the fall of Adam, man just keeps falling to that same exact trick of the devil. And Satan just keeps seeking generation after generation to get God's people and the people on this planet to question the Word of God, and there's two basic reasons that he does that. Number one, because of what the Word of God is. The simple fact of what it is. According to John chapter 1 and verse 1, this book is Jesus. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just so that we would have no way of not making the right connection, he comes down 13 verses later and in John chapter 1 and verse 14, and he says that the Word, which was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, God did that in the person of, of Jesus. God, the Word, in a human body. And so Satan wants to count, cast doubt on this book, first of all, because of what it is, or more grammatically correct, I guess, would be who it is. It is Jesus. But not only that, Satan wants us to question this book because of what it does. Because of what it does. Now, it, it does a lot of stuff, to be quite honest about it. But above everything else, listen, it is through this book that God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. It is the only way that God has chosen to reveal himself. To mankind and you see that's why Satan wants you to doubt this book because you see if he can get you to doubt this book and this book is the only way that God has chosen to reveal himself then once you begin to question it Satan knows that you'll never understand who God is and you'll never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you see that's ultimately what it is that he wants to do in your life he does not want you to know the truth of what this book says so he wants you to he wants you to question it and you see since God chose to reveal himself through a book so that we would never have to come to this book and ever question the validity of it God did something incredible when he put this book together y'all 
You know what God did? He made it a supernatural book. He made it a supernatural book so that you would never in a million years have to ever question the validity of whether this book was really from God. Now last week I showed you one of its supernatural, incredible, irrefutable proofs that this book is in fact God's book and the book that he has chosen to use on this planet to reveal himself is its ability not only to predict the future. Now, now listen, this book does predict the future and you need to understand something there is not another book on the face of this planet that has the guts to even attempt to do that not the Muslims Quran not the Jehovah's Witnesses studies in the scriptures not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the Book of Mormon there's not another book on this planet that even attempts to foretell the future because you see, if you, if you put in a book, and you claim that this book is from God, and you begin to try to foretell the future, all you have to do to just annihilate its trustworthiness and, and, and its validity is just find one place where it says it, it, it's foretelling the future, and it doesn't come to pass, and you know what? You can throw that thing out, and I want you to understand something. We talk about this all the time around here, but this book is a book that has 10,000... 300 specific prophecies in it, and in the last 4,000 years, it's never missed, not even one time. Now, that's, I would say that's pretty supernatural, especially in light of the fact that you can't find any other books anywhere in the world that even attempt to do that. But check this out. The Bible not only has the supernatural ability to foretell the future, now, now listen to this. It's on your study sheet. Now listen to this. God uses the events of history to foretell the future. He uses the events of history to actually foretell the future. For example, let's take the biblical or the historical account of the life of Ruth. And of course, it's recorded for us in the, the book, that bears her name in the Word of God. And I want you to listen to, to this. This is, especially those of you that are, are clueless about the life of Ruth or the book of Ruth, and I want you to get this and get as much down as you possibly can because it's, it's absolutely astounding what God does using the events of history to foretell the, the future. Now, now, first of all, the, the whole story of the, the book of Ruth takes place at a time when there is no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And during that time, the Bible says that the, it was an incredible famine that was in the land. And during the midst of this famine, a Jewish family that was living in the midst of that famine sold their property and left the place of blessing and moved to the country of Moab. When they came into that country, the two sons in the family took wives to themselves of the daughters of Moab and you need to understand that biblically the Moabites are a cursed and a despised group a group of people on this planet a race of people who were absolutely without a covenant with God but they take wives of these women well first of all the father in the family dies and then shortly thereafter the two sons die as well leaving in the story three helpless starving widows trying to fend for themselves and one of those widows was a lady by the name of, of Ruth and one day her mother-in-law shares with her the fact that she had heard good news from a far land that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread in Bethlehem now hearing that news Ruth leaves her people and all of the gods of the Moabites and takes to herself the God of her mother-in-law, the God of the Jews. And she goes to Bethlehem to partake of that bread that was there. She happens to come into the city of Bethlehem at a particular time. It was harvest time. And as she comes in there, she had gotten into the Bible for herself and she had found out that even though she was without a covenant, that there was a provision in the Bible for people that were just like her and that is 
she could come into the field of a landowner if he might extend to her that grace. And she was permitted to be able to come behind the reapers as they would come through that field and she would be able to take of the gleanings in that field. And of all of the fields that she could have gone to in all of the world and in all of Bethlehem, she just happened to come into a field of the only one on the face of this planet who could fulfill for her another provision of the Word of God for people in her situation. And it was the provision of what is called the kinsman redeemer, which very simply stated that if a woman had lost their property due to poverty or, or death, it could still be redeemed or bought back. And the way that could happen is if a near kinsman or if a close relative would be willing to pay the purchase price of the property and would take her to wife, that original property could come back into her possession. And without even knowing that that provision was in the Bible, of all of the fields in Bethlehem that she could have gone into, she just happens to go into the field of the only one on this planet who could fulfill for her the provision of the kinsman redeemer. He is a mighty man from the city of Bethlehem whose name was Boaz. She goes into his field on that day and when Boaz comes to the field to assess the situation, he looks into that field and he takes one look at her and he falls head over heels in love with her. He takes her out of his harvest field brings her to his home and makes her his bride. Okay, do 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 Now that's a nice little story. In fact, in, in history, people even in secular writing talk about the fact that it is one of the most incredible love stories in the entire world. But when you come to the new to, into the New Testament, what you find is that that cute little love story was really all the most incredible prophetic picture that you ever heard in your life. Now, now listen, everything that I just told you actually happened historically, and it happened just exactly the way that the book of Ruth said. But now listen, God was taking those actual events of history, and he was going to use those to foretell the future. And let me show you what I mean. Right now on this planet, we're living in a time of famine spiritually. We're living at a time when there's no king in Israel and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And you see, I too was born into a despised, cursed race. It's what we call the human race. And I too found myself completely without a covenant with God. But one day like Ruth, Somebody shared with me good news from a far land that the Lord had visited his people in the city of Bethlehem in giving them bread. And what I found out is that God had made himself, check this out, y'all, God had made himself my kinsman. That is, God became a man. And he did that for the sole purpose of redeeming or buying back the fallen estate of my soul, which had become absolutely and totally bankrupt through death. And on September 24th, 1972, somebody shared with me that good news about a mighty man from Bethlehem, the God-man from the city of Bethlehem. A man of wealth, a man totally without sin, the one who could be the bread of life for my soul. I found out that he had taken one look at me down in this field that is called the world, and in spite of all of my sin, you know what he did? He fell head over heels in love with dirty, stinking me. And you know what I did? I heard that good news. That's what the word gospel means in your Bible. I heard that good news and I turned my back on my life and all of the gods that I was serving and I partook of the bread of life in Bethlehem. And coincidentally enough, what, what I've found is I've just happened to come into this thing at a very unique period of time. You know what it's called? It's called harvest time. 
In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, The field is the world. Listen, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. And he's left me in his field to come behind those reapers to glean, listen, until he takes me out of his harvest field and takes me to his home where he's going to make me his bride. You see, God took the events of history and I mean every single detail, you can go through every single detail in the entire book of Ruth and you come to the New Testament and find out God was just foretelling what was going to happen to this group of people that's sitting in this room this morning. Incredible. We could go to the life of Job and we could do the same thing. You go to the book of the Bible that bears his name and what you find out is here is a Jew whose name means persecuted one. And he endures tribulation like no one that you've ever seen. And one day he lost all of his family, all of his children. He didn't lose his wife, sadly enough. But then one day he lost all of his children, all of his possessions, all of his health. He is persecuted by the devil and goes through incredible tribulation, listen to it, for seven days and seven nights and as he endures this tribulation he just happens to be in the land of us which is in the land of Edom which is where Petra is the place of the rock and for time's sake this morning we won't go through all of it by the end of the story though I want you to check it out Job is restored back to the place he was before he lost all that he lost before that tribulation all started and again what it is, it's a nice little story that historically happened and every bit of it is totally accurate. But what we do is we look and we find out that God, once again, was taking the actual events of history and using them for, to foretell the future. And, and what you see in, in the Bible is that in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, God prophesied the fact that just prior to the restoration of Israel, there would be one final week of years. A week of years that would last seven days and seven nights where the Jews would be persecuted by the devil. And it would be such an incredible, intense time of trouble or tribulation that even Jesus himself said, I'll tell you, there's never been anything like it before and there'll never be anything like it after it. And while the Jews endure this tribulation, just take a wild stab at where they're going to be. They're going to be in the land of Uz, which is where Edom is, which is where Petra is, and God himself, in the place of the rock, God himself is going to feed them there for 42 months until the kingdom is restored to Israel. And coincidentally enough, the book of Job has 42 chapters, and in that 42nd chapter, Job, the persecuted Jew in tribulation, has restored to him all that he lost. And again, I'm trying to show you something. God didn't want you to ever, ever, ever question this book. And so that you wouldn't, he made it a book of prophecy. And not just a book of prophecy. A book of prophecy like you can never imagine. I mean, come on, y'all. What about a God who can take the events of history and use them to foretell the future? I mean, that's just an incredible book, and God's placed it in our hand. We won't take the time to even touch it. The other one is the life of Joshua, and Frank has brought us masterfully through that book of the Bible and shown us that God did the same exact thing with the, the life of Joshua. Every single event all the way through the man's life is just pointing to the, another Joshua that would come to this planet and has now come. But we find ourselves now in Revelation chapter 12. We're now in, in the midst of, uh, of John bringing us through the tribulation period for the third out of the four times that he does so in, in this book. And he does, brings us through this third time through the revealing of seven personages in chapters 12 through 14 and he shows us these seven persons 
uh, all along showing us the, the, the life and work and ministry of, of the Antichrist. We'll see that even more specifically when we get into chapter 13. But we began our outline in verse 1 of chapter 12, looking at a great wonder in heaven. We spent some time, first of all, identifying the characters of this wonder that John saw in verses 1 through 5. And we saw that the woman is, of course, Israel. The great red dragon is the devil. And the child, of course, in the passage is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw next that he wanted to make sure that after we had properly identified the characters that we had properly identified the context and we saw from verse 6 of Revelation 12 along with verse 14 that the context that we're dealing with here in this chapter is the second half of the tribulation period it is the final three and a half years it's what verse 14 is talking about there where you see time times and half a time three and a half three and a half years which equals 1260 days and those days are spelled out for you in verse 6 so they set the context of chapter 12 and all the way through 14 for us and then last week we began looking at Roman numeral 2 on our outline at a great war in heaven first of all it was a great wonder in heaven now he begins to show us a great war in heaven and we didn't actually get into the description of the actual war itself last time we spent the majority of our time identifying the combatants and that was letter a on your outline identifying the combatants or the participants in this heavenly combat and the first one of these combatants of course is Michael and by comparing scripture with scripture we learned some very significant things about Michael what we did last week is we went to the five references where his name appears in the Bible and we began to let God just form a composite for us and what we found out is that first of all that Michael is an angel but he's no ordinary angel he is you remember the what the archangel in other words he is the chief of the angels the angel of the highest rank the commanding general as it were and we use that terminology because in every reference to him in the Bible it has something to do with him in the midst of some kind of spiritual warfare against satanic powers in the heavenlies and we also noted that these these battles in the heavenlies that you see him engaged in always have something to do with who with Israel with Israel and what we found is that God has specifically assigned Michael who is the greatest and most powerful of his angels he has assigned to him the task of defending Israel against the attacks of Satan's principalities and powers and rulers and we noted also that not only will Michael war with Satan himself in in the future that's what this battle is here that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 12 that'll take place in the middle of the tribulation period but what we found is that that future battle will actually be a rematch because according to Jude verse 9 they've already done battle once when Satan was trying to take possession of Moses body after Moses died and what we found out in Jude 9 is that in the strength and power of the word of the Lord Michael prevailed against him in that first battle so that was Michael the first combatant in this war and then we went into the biblical composite of this other participant in this combat in, in heaven the one that verse 7 identifies as the dragon and whereas with with Michael we had to look to the rest of the scripture to form a composite with him we found that this this passage right here in Revelation 12 forms really for us a, a fairly complete composite of the dragon through the six titles that are used to refer to him in verses 9 and 10. We worked through each of them last week. First, he's called the great red dragon, which speaks of his incredible bloodthirsty power. Next, he's called that old serpent, which speaks of his subtlety and the, the cunning craftiness with which he operates. Thirdly, he's called the devil, which speaks of his diabolical nature, which expresses itself in false accusations 
and slander. In fact, the, that word devil is in other places in the New Testament even translated false accuser and slanderer. Fourth, he's called Satan. The word simply means adversary. And of course, it identifies him in direct opposition to God. He is God's adversary. But not only that, he is also the adversary of all those who are born into God's family. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says that your adversary, talking to believers, your adversary, the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Fifth, he is the deceiver. His key mode of operation is deception. To appear to be something other than he is. You see, what he is, is he is the prince of the rulers of the darkness of this world. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 says of Satan that he transforms himself into an angel of what? Of light. And if you question his abilities in this whole arena of this deception, Revelation 12, 9 gives you the scope of the thing. He says that it is he deceiveth the whole world and again it's because he poses as a voice for God as opposed to against God he, he poses as a movement on this planet for God instead of against God and in so doing he deceiveth the whole world and then six he is the accuser the accuser of our brethren and what you find is that contrary to what most people think Satan himself spends most of his time not in hell not in bars, nightclubs, casinos, and houses of prostitution. He doesn't even spend the majority of his time on earth at all. Though he is definitely and most definitely the God of this world. And he's, as we mentioned last week, has a highly sophisticated system of evil through which he operates on this planet through principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. But as far as Satan himself, he spends his time in absolutely the most unlikely place that you would ever in a million years ever expect to find him. He spends most of his time in the very presence of God. And the end of verse 10 says that he's there day after day and night after night and he's there to get in God's face accusing God's children. And what's interesting is that when you go to the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, that's exactly where you find him. In Job chapter 1 and 2, you find Satan in the presence of God, and you know what he's doing? He is accusing one of God's children. He's accusing Job, and when you see him here in the last book of the Bible, all the way up to the midpoint of the tribulation, that's where you find him. He is still... You still find him there, you still find him doing the same exact thing, still day after day and night after night, accusing the children of God. And you see, that's really what this war in heaven is all about. It's that time in the, at the midpoint of the tribulation. And here, now get the picture in your mind. Here's God on his throne. And Satan... For the last 6,000 years, keeps coming and keeps coming, and day after day, night after night, just like, I mean, just like, you know, a little fly that just drive you nuts, you know what I'm saying? And he just keeps coming before that throne, and he's been doing it for the last 6,000 years, and God's been listening as he's been accusing us, and check it out right now, he's probably accusing some of y'all because you're sleeping in, in church. But he's up there. And all of a sudden, what Revelation 12 says is there's going to come a time here in the not-too-distant future where God's going to say, that's it. Yo, Michael, I want you to come over here for just a second. Uh, I want you to deal with my light work for me. Um, you know what, this... This chump's been in my face for the last 6,000 years, and to be quite honest about it, Michael, I'm, I'm sick of looking at him. Michael's over across the way and says, Yes, sir. I'd be more than happy to do that. And so Michael begins to make his, his way over to the throne, and Satan looks at Michael and says, Bring it on, baby. 
You may have gotten me once, brother, but I guarantee doggone you, you are not going to get me the next time. And Michael says, we're good. <laughs> then let's step outside. And so check it out. Michael and Satan step out of the third heaven where God's presence is. And they come down into the, the, the second heaven. And man, wouldn't you love to see that? And there they are. And they square off, man. And as soon as they do, all of a sudden, every single one of Satan's angels, which of course would be what we would refer to today as, as demons, they're that third part of the... Look back in verse 4. They're that third part of the stars of heaven that would have fallen with Lucifer back at his rebellion way back in eternity past where Lucifer set himself as God's adversary or, or Satan. And so check it out. Here it is. Michael and Satan square off down in the second heaven. And in one instant, every single one of Satan's angels are there with Satan behind him to come against Michael. And as soon as they arrive, God up in the third heaven unleashes out of heaven what I bet you will be half of the angels that are in heaven. You say, well, why do you think it would be, it would be half? Now, now check it out. A third of the angels fell with Lucifer. Okay? Now, if God then takes the ha uh, half of those that haven't fallen, that remained with him in heaven, and he sends half of them it would be equal to the amount that Satan brings to hit with him. You got it? Okay? So here you go. You got Michael. You got Satan. You got a third of the angels behind Satan. You got a third of the angels behind Michael. And buddy, you talk about a showdown. And you see, that's exactly what verse 7 sets, the way it sets it up. Look at, look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And now we move in our outline to letter B, identifying the conquest. Identifying the conquest. And we're going to see, first of all, the removal from heaven. The removal from heaven. Now, uh, to be quite honest, we don't get all of the melodrama that we'd like to get here, you know, like what keeps us on the edge of our seat when we're watching a Rocky movie, you know. Because, we, I mean, we've set this thing up now. And, I mean, we're ready to just see Michael just cold cock that sucker, aren't we? I mean, we want to just see that thing happen. What God does for us, though, is he just gets right to the point in verse 8. Because you see, now listen, the whole purpose of this war in heaven in the first place was to get Satan and his imps out of God's face. And that's why I love the way that God communicates this. God says at the end of verse 7 that the dragon and his angels fought, verse 8, but they got their behinds whipped. Now, actually it says they prevailed not, that what I was showing you, in the Greek it means they got their behinds whipped. <laughs> they prevailed not, and check it out, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. The great dragon was cast out. Now listen, I don't know what all was involved I, I, I've tried to think through this thing. I, I don't know what weapons they actually used down there in that, that war against each other. I don't know how long the war actually lasted. There's a lot of things about this war that I don't know. But what I do know is that when it was all over, Michael and his angels make their way back into heaven and take their place around the throne of God. And when they came back in, check it out, they closed the door behind them. Verse 8 says, Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Satan and his angels, as a result of that war in heaven that's going to take place at the midpoint in the tribulation period, never, ever again is he ever going to be in God's face, and neither are his sorry, no good demons. And buddy, listen, after Michael shuts that door, the next time that door opens is going to be at the end of the tribulation period. And when it opens that next time, listen, there ain't nobody that's going to be going in it. Somebody's going to be coming out of it. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11 says that heaven's going to open 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come through that door in heaven, and He's going to come out of it riding on a white horse, and He's going to come back to this earth, and this time when He comes back to this planet, you know what He's going to do? He's going to fight Satan himself that time. And I may not be able to give you all the details of that war that Michael and Satan are going to have in just a little bit, but listen, you give me just a few years, and I'll be able to give you a blow-by-blow description of what Jesus is going to do in this battle with him, because Revelation chapter 19 tells me that when Jesus comes busting out of heaven on that white horse, I'm going to be following right behind him on that thing, along with the rest of y'all that know him as your Savior this morning. And when he comes out of heaven, listen... He's got one thing on his mind at that point. The first thing on his mind will be to come back to this planet to fulfill a prophecy that God gave 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden right after Satan had, had caused, in the caused the first man and the first woman to fall. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God told Satan that from that moment on there would be enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of the woman. And he said that, that's, that, that, that the seed of Satan, that Satan himself, would bruise the heel of that one that would come from the seed of the woman. And of course, we know that now was the cross. And God said, you'll bruise him on that cross. You'll bruise his heel. But God said, ultimately, that the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to crush your head, Satan. And buddy, at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus makes his entrance into this earth's atmosphere. You know what time it's going to be, y'all? It's going to be head-crushing time. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lead us all the way back to the earth. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says that every eye shall see him. And it says that all the kindreds of the nations are going to bewail because of him. And he says when we get here... The Bible begins to explain the fact that when he comes, he is going to step off of his horse, and the first place that he is, the sole of his foot is going to touch on this planet is a place that is called the Mount of Olives, just like Jesus said. And the most wonderful thing of all is that when that foot touches down, it's going to have the head of Satan under it. God said, yes, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but one of these days he's going to come out of heaven, and he is going to crush your stinking head. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 that on that day he will be admired and glorified by every single person that knows him. We're going to be pretty stoked on that day, y'all. And if it doesn't do something to stoke you now, then you, you don't understand the real war that we're in. But check this out, man. He's coming back and he's going to step off of that horse. Satan's head is going to be underneath it. In Zechariah chapter 14, in verse 4, says that that first step is going to be so powerful. Check it out. It says that the Mount of Olives is going to literally split in two from the east and to the west. And half of the mountain will shift to the north. Half of the mountain will shift to the south. And what Zechariah said in that passage, Zechariah chapter 14, he says when it makes that shift, it's going to make an incredible valley, a very great valley, he said. And Zechariah said that when this happens, there will never have been a time of more unbelievable destruction. And what he explains in that passage is that those who have aligned themselves with Satan through the person of the Antichrist during the tribulation period, those who have battled against God, Zechariah in Zechariah 14:12 says that the flaming power of the Lord Jesus Christ when he steps off of that horse is going to be so incredible that men's flesh will literally burn off of their bodies when they stand upon their feet and it says that their eyes will literally melt away in their sockets. Listen, you thought the atomic bomb in Hiroshima was an incredible power. Zechariah said, you haven't seen anything yet. And I know that it sounds like we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves by talking about this battle that, that Jesus is going to have with Satan. But you see, what you've got to understand about this one that we're looking at here is that the whole purpose of this war that Michael is having with Satan is to get Satan out of God's face in heaven and to get him on a leash down here on the earth 
so that God can fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 to crush his head at the end of the tribulation period. That's the whole reason for this. So there's, there's really two reasons for this war that Michael has with Satan in the middle of the tribulation. First, to cast Satan out of heaven. To cast Satan out of heaven. And second, to cast Satan down to earth. And you know, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever lost a, a fight or not. You know, of course, I, I haven't. <laughs> Just kidding. I know that some of you would like to see me lose one with you, right? But those who have lost a fight or two in their life will, will tell you that there's one thing that you, you hate after it. And that's for anybody to talk about it. You know, I mean, it was bad enough that it happened. But man, talking about it is almost worse than, than it happening, you know? And, and you've got to realize something here. Now, now we've mentioned this, this before, but let me take just a second to remind you of this, because it's an easy thing to forget. What John recorded for us here in, in the book of Revelation, and of course by the inspiration of God, you need to keep in mind that what he was recording for us wasn't a, a dream or a, a vision that he had. It wasn't God telling him to write about things that were going to happen in, in the future. Now, listen, what we find here in this book of the Bible is that he was writing about the things that he actually was seeing, the things that he was actually hearing, the things that he was witnessing with his very eyes. Sometimes he was even participating in the events we saw that in, in chapter 11. I mean, he's actually experiencing these things while, while they're happening. And most of the things that he witnessed and, and wrote about in this book are things... Now, now listen. Now, he actually experienced them. Now, he wrote the book in 95 or so A.D., and he actually experienced those events, but we're living in 1998, and they haven't happened yet. And you see... The reason he could do that is because of what God lets us know back in chapter 1 and verse 10, and that is that when John received the revelation, he was catapulted forward in time to somewhere within the next decade or so. And so when he, when he writes about this war in heaven, though it hasn't, hasn't actually happened as far as we're concerned in 1998 from our perspective of the past and the, and the present and, and the future, listen, he's writing about it as if it was a done deal from God's perspective. And the reason that he writes about it from that perspective is that from where John witnessed this thing, he writes about it as if it were past tense because it already is a done deal. And again, I know that on our finite minds, because we're trapped into to this finite body, it's real hard for us to understand how something that hasn't happened yet has already happened about it, and John can pick up his pen and begin writing about it and write about it in the past tense. But that's what we've got in Revelation chapter 12. It, what he says here is that the dragon and his angels fought. Not that they will fight in the future. No, he's already seen it happen. He says they fought, but they didn't prevail. Not that they won't prevail, they didn't prevail the great dragon was cast out he was cast out the angels were cast out and the point is michael is going to prevail over satan and he's going to cast satan's slithery self out of heaven once and for all will cast him to the earth and that's just as sure as if it had already happened because from god's perspective it already has and because it already has you know what God loves to talk about it. And it's like, it, it, it's like God wants to just keep throwing this up in Satan's face. Check out the end of verse 7. God says, The dragon and his angels fought, but they prevailed not. Place found any more in heaven. Okay, now, anybody having a hard time understanding that? You, you got that? You understand it? Yeah, got it. Satan got the devil beat out of it. Okay, got it. Verse 9, God says, I said the great dragon was cast out. Uh, yeah, Lord, we, we got you. We got you there. Look at the end of verse 9. God says, 
in case you missed what I said the first two times, I just wanted you to know Satan was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And you know what? You, you, you kind of get the idea that God was pretty stoked about that. He, he just can't find enough ways to tell you that that sucker got kicked out of heaven and he got his behind whipped. And you know what? Again, it's, it's bad enough when you lose a fight. But man, when, when, when somebody just keeps throwing that thing up in your face, man, and God just finds all kinds of ways to just keep throwing it up and telling him what his destiny is. And, and you see, I guarantee you that if you had had Satan coming up in your presence day and night for the last 6,000 years saying, you know, na 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 boo boo about your kids and how sorry and nasty and dirty your kids were, you know what? You'd be pretty excited to get him out of your face too. And God unleashes Michael and his angels, and I love it. He is removed from heaven forever. And as you can see, God just loves talking about it. And don't you know that Satan just hates hearing about it? But not only is God stoked about the fact that his adversary and accuser of his children was cast out of heaven and down to the earth, you know what you see here? All the rest of heaven's pretty stoked too. Look, look next with me at the rejoicing of heaven. The rejoicing of heaven. John says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. In, in other words, hallelujah! We finally got rid of that proud, vile, hateful, dirty, wretched, sorry, no good, low-down, hell-deserving, diabolical, detestable, blasphemous, disgusting, loudmouth, once and for all. We've finally gotten rid of him, man. And again, those are just the special nuances of the words in the Greek there. But verse 10 says that there is great rejoicing in heaven. When Michael and his angels are down there fighting and they come back into heaven and they bolt and bar the door, all heaven with one voice just begins to praise God. That sucker is out of here. You say, well, well whose voice is it there? In, in verse 10, that was doing this incredibly loud rejoicing. We'll go back to, to chapter 6 with me for a minute. And let me remind you of what we saw back here when the Lord was bringing us through an overview of the, the tribulation period, through the opening of the seven seals in this chapter, Revelation 6. And you'll remember in verse 9 that when the Lord Jesus Christ opened the fifth seal, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And you remember whose souls that they were that he saw there? Who was it? Those were the tribulation saints. And do you remember what John, what he heard them crying out for God to do? Look in verse 10. John says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long, God, are you going to hold out on this thing? They're crying to God to unleash His power. Check it out. Go back over to chapter 12 now. These are the same ones in chapter 12 and verse 10 who in unison begin to rejoice with a loud voice when they see the tribulation period has come to a climax. They've seen that God has begun, begun to kick things into action toward bringing salvation to His people. They're seeing that He begins to exercise His strength. He's beginning to move toward setting up His kingdom where Christ will rule on this planet in power. You say, yeah, but how do you know it's the tribulation saints that are rejoicing about this stuff? Watch the wording in the last part of the verse. For the accuser of whom? The accuser of our 
brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And of course, those that will be accused during this time are who? The tribulation saints, the ones that haven't yet been put to death. So the, the ones lifting their voices in praise here identify themselves as the brethren of those Satan was busy accusing, and those were the ones that were on the earth down during the tribulation period, the tribulation saints. And watch what it says about the brethren of these tribulation saints who were still on the earth in verse 11. It says, And they, that's the tribulation saints on the earth, they overcame him, and who is that? That's the dragon, right? Their accuser. They overcame him by three things. Check it out. Number one, by the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They Check it out. I, I love this. They overcome the great red dragon because they've applied the blood of a lamb. The, the crimson blood of Mary's little lamb is powerful enough to overcome the incredible strength of a great red dragon. Revelation 7 and verse 14 says that those who come out of great tribulation, and of course the great tribulation is that final three and a half years, same exact context we're dealing with, with here. It, it says that those who come out of great tribulation have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Number two, they overcome him by the word of their testimony. By the word of their testimony. And if you compare scripture with scripture, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, it says this, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He says here, they overcome him by the word of their testimony. Revelation 19 10 defines th this thing is the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know how they overcame him? They had a prophetic utterance that came from God. You know what that was? They were able to foretell the future. They knew what the future held. And you know what? Anybody who is applied the blood of Jesus Christ on their life, you know what? They have the ability to foretell the future. You know what's going to happen to you when you die. You foretell the future. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. These people have a testimony that they can declare with their lips that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, they're going to spend eternity with him. And then number three... They overcame him because they loved not their life unto the death. They loved not their life unto the death. And what we find in the tribulation period is that for those who do apply the blood of Jesus Christ and, and live out their testimony on the earth, they do pay an incredible price for it. They're called upon to die for their faith. And, and notice the way that the, the wording is <clears throat> here. Look at the last part of verse 11. And they love not their lives. It doesn't say unto death. Unto the death. And you know what? During the tribulation period, there is a very specific kind of death that they die. Do you remember what it is? They're beheaded. They lose their head for Jesus. That's the way... They overcome him. And here is all of heaven. And they are rejoicing because Satan has been cast down. And yeah, Satan was on the earth. But you know what? They're down there overcoming him. You know why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the word of their testimony. And because they love not their lives unto death. He could even kill them. And it, it doesn't really matter. Because I know what my destiny is. And I want you to listen very, very carefully. Please don't pack up. I want you to listen very carefully here this morning. God brought some of you into this room to 
come through this passage and to, to learn some things from the Bible, maybe, wow, that's incredible. And all that's wonderful. But I really believe that God brought you here today because he wanted you to understand that you too need to become an overcomer. Or you will, in the very near future, be overcome. And here's how you overcome. By the blood of a lamb. There is nothing in the world that you can do to cause your separation from God to be any different than what it is. Our sin has separated us from God. God became a man, came to this planet, and laid his life down, shed his blood, because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And the blood that would remit our sins had to be perfect blood. It had to be God's blood. And so God became a man. He became the Lamb of God. And the blood of the Lamb has been spilled for you. But if you're ever going to overcome what is ahead in the tribulation period, you must apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your own life. Number two, you need to have a testimony. You need to be able to foretell the future. You need to know that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from your sin. That's the only thing that you're trusting. And that becomes the word of your testimony. That's the only thing that you're banking on to give you eternal life. And then that third thing, you love not your life unto death. Now, you're probably not going to have your head chopped off for Jesus. But what he wants you to do is on a daily basis, lay your life down. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what it is? He really does want you to lose your life so that you can find it in Him. Him living His life through you. You know what you do? You lose your head over this thing. That's really the way it is. And you no longer approach life from your own vantage point and the way that you reason everything out. You lose your head. And you find the life of Jesus Christ and you begin to get the mind of Christ. And that's how we overcome Him in these last days. The same way that our brothers in the tribulation period will do, just different reason. But that's what he wants for you today. He wants for you to apply the blood of Jesus Christ on your life. You do that, he'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. <clears throat> and now, Lord, I, I pray for people in this, this room have never come to the cross and found the forgiveness of sins that is granted to us because you were willing to shed your perfect blood on our behalf. And Lord, I, I pray this morning that right now the Spirit of God would work in the hearts of, of people. I, I pray that we will not be satisfied to just have our intellectual curiosity stimulated. I, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in the lives of people convicting of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Lord, before these events of the tribulation period begin, I pray that they would call upon your name so that they can be removed from this planet before it all begins. I pray that today, while you are speaking to their hearts, and while they are listening, people would respond to your invitation. to experience a love relationship with you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood for our sin. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us all in this room to be overcomers. I pray that you'd help us to live out who you've made us in Christ. Help out us to live out the word of our testimony and help us not to love our lives unto death. As your children, we desire to allow you to live your life through us. And so now, Lord, before people leave here and go back into the flow of life that is so noisy and so void of you and so void of truth, I pray that you'd help them to respond to your voice this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're here this morning,